Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. In this episode, Chris and I are going to be discussing mental health for Mental Health Awareness Month, and a shout out to our good friends at Seng for asking us to do this episode. We're going to be talking about some difficult themes, so I'd like to start with a content warning. We talk about addiction, trauma and suicide, so please take care with this episode. We're also sorry to announce that Dr. Frank Falk, Director of Research at the Institute for the Study of Advanced Development, passed away on April 23, 2023 in Denver, Colorado. Frank was Chris's friend, colleague and mentor and joined us on Episode 5 about researching overexcitability. Frank was a social psychologist and statistician who spent more than 40 years studying Dabrowski's theory. He was a major supporter of the Dabrowski Centre and the podcast, and he will be deeply and sorely missed. His wife, Nancy, is also a close friend and colleague and long-time student of the theory, and our sympathies go out to her during this difficult time. But we hope that by talking about difficult emotions, mental health, and the theory of positive disintegration, we do justice and service to his memory. Frank, this episode is for you. Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. G'day, Chris. G'day, Emma. How are you? I'm decidedly average this morning. My niece got married last night, um, which was a fantastic event, but um, uh, poor old Arnie Emma forgot that she doesn't drink a whole lot these days and had decidedly too many beers. <laughs> yeah, for, for those of you um, who don't know Australianisms, you're about to get a whole heap of them. Um, so obviously I was on the piss, as we say, was, was drinking. It was a good night. Um, I then took a stack, which means I fell over, um, into a garden bed. And so I've got one twisted knee, I'm hobbling around in a knee brace. And, um, this morning I was feeling quite poorly and, uh, spent a little bit of time, as we say, driving the porcelain bus. Um, so (laughs) was a little bit ill so was not feeling the best physically well i'm sorry to hear that Jeez, i hope that you can still have this conversation but i mean you know just saying that i know that you can and don't feel bad because i'm also feeling very average today my mind is not where it usually is when we record because i have had a tough like six weeks at this point um last month i got covid for the first time and i was quite sick you know, sicker that it surprised me how sick I was. I had a bad cough and just was like having a hard time breathing at times. And I have asthma and I haven't had, had like required an inhaler in years. So it was a lot. Um, and then it's just as I was recovering and feeling well again from COVID and my friend and mentor, Frank Falk passed away. And so I'm not in a great place. You know, I'm just still really struggling with that. And and yet this is real and this is how life is. So I'd still wanted to show up and have this conversation with you. Cause that's kind of what we plan to talk about today. I guess, you know, um, we don't have a guest on today. Uh, and it's just, uh, Chris and I having a chat, but we wanted to put an episode together for mental health month. You know, sometimes these things happen to us in life. And I guess Chris, you're an example of, 
you know, sometimes things can be fine one minute and then the next minute stuff in your world just isn't quite right. So we want to talk about the theory and how that can possibly sit in the mental health space and how it might help us sort of navigate some of this, you know, tough stuff that we might be going through. That's right. Although I have to say, as I was trying to prepare for this episode, I just kept thinking about my own experiences with mental health treatment and, you know, the fact that I used to really see myself as mentally ill. And I've thought a lot about stigma. So those are kind of the places where I was coming from. But, you know, when it comes to the theory, I thought Frank died and how do I deal with it? I go to what I've written about him because I'm a writer, you know, and I've documented so much about these relationships in my life. And so I've been reading what I wrote about Frank and looking at our emails, listening to recordings that I have of him. You know, I have an interview I did with him about Michael Bihofsky. I have um, recorded sessions of the Dabrowski study group. I have recordings of conference presentations we did together. And what's been interesting is, you know, when I first was getting to know Frank and his wife, Nancy, and Michael, I saw myself as mentally ill. I, when I met Frank and Nancy, I was still taking medication for bipolar disorder and ADHD and anxiety. I was still going to a psychiatrist. I had a completely different perspective of myself than I do now. And it really comes through in the writing with Frank that he was the one who sat down with me and really delved into the theory. And we would meet week after week after week at the Gifted Development Center here in Colorado and just sit down with Dabrowski's writings, um, with Michael's. We examined data. You know, we really studied this together. You know, that's what's on my mind when I'm thinking about mental health tonight, just my own experiences of it from a lot of different perspectives. There's just, there's so much to say about what's wrong with mental health treatment and like how hard it is to um, get the right help, to find the right framework to understand what's going on with yourself. And that is where this theory really shines compared to the the typical understanding that's available for people, at least in my opinion. I agree. Um, and one thing I wanted to, you know, talk to you about in particular, because obviously you know the theory so well, and obviously you've gone through this experience of having it reframe how you see yourself. I, I think the first thing I wanted to dive into was what is it about the theory that Dabrowski says that people who are, you know, struggling with this, you know, what, what are the, the key aspects of the theory in particular that you found resonated with you um, or were, you know, helpful as part of that reframing? Um, I have my thoughts on it, but I just want to hear your perspective first. Well, when I read about the overexcitabilities, like that was the, I would say the first thing that I was reading about because I came to it first from the gifted ed literature, you know, and Michael's work, you know, I remember reading the descriptions of overexcitabilities and thinking that like, what, you know, these were things that I had considered 
wrong with me, especially emotional. And I think that that's, well, not just that. I mean, imaginational too, you know, because I had that experience of having like, you know, an imaginal world. I consider that something wrong with me. And the same thing with the emotional overexcitability. I saw that as, I mean, a personal failing, a flaw, like a mental illness, a mood disorder. It had never occurred to me that there was anything positive about being so emotional like I am or being so intellectual because that's always been something that really sets me apart in a way that is isolating. You know, I have felt like very few people in my life have ever related to how intellectual I am. And so, you know, seeing these things reframed as positive was pretty mind blowing. But then there were the dynamisms and I was like, what? All of them I recognized in myself and I had not seen these as strengths at all. And so this new perspective really blew me away. And it's not like I came to it and immediately embraced it because I didn't. It took time. But as soon as I read that material for the first time, you know, it definitely permeated my consciousness in a way that immediately led to cracks in the foundation of my belief about myself as mentally ill. I thought, oh my gosh, it's alarming. It's interesting. It it was a lot to take in. What about for you? I feel similar about that. Like what you said about cracks showing is an interesting analogy for me because that's, I found it was kind of a long journey to really start believing these sorts of things. Like you read them on an intellectual level and your mind takes it in, but it takes a while to actually believe it. And it's almost like a disintegration of how you view yourself. So similar to you, you know, I found overexcitability um, enormously helpful for the first point because all those traits and things that I thought that I had, as you said, that oh, these are obviously flaws, you know, why can't I cope with life? And it's like, oh, okay, maybe these aren't flaws. Um, and you start having these little paradigm shifts. The other thing that really resonated with me was the concept that psychoneurosis is not an illness. So seeing those big emotions um, and that they actually had a role in development um, and that all those big feelings that you have aren't necessarily bad mental health because similar to you, I'd always thought that, you know, I was just struggling the entire time and why can't I maintain good mental health like everybody else does and this actually sort of explained to me why I was the way I was, that it was okay to feel those big emotions and more to the point that they could actually be useful and purposeful. And even in the last year, um, you're, what you said about the, the dynamisms, it's taken me a long time to kind of see those what we'd call negative emotions normally as being useful and purposeful. So, like, you know that I did that Hartman value profile like a while ago and so th this value profile sort of judges how you see the outside world and also how you see yourself and I got such a shitty score with you know my self-esteem that I kind of broke the tool a little bit 
And that kind of really rattled me. I'm like, why, you know, why do I still feel so badly about myself? And I, I kind of had a series of realizations after that, that that propensity for me to find fault in myself, it wasn't just a lack of self-esteem. It was actually dynamisms at work. So all those things like guilt and shame and dissatisfaction with yourself, they're actually what Dabrowski calls out as being necessary for reshaping your behavior. And I, looking at the dynamisms really sort of helped me go, oh, these actually, things actually have a purpose. So how can they be flaws if they actually serve that mechanism of, you know, the, the carrots and the sticks, the good feelings and the bad feelings? I mean, you still need the sticks, right? You still need those bad negative feelings. So how can there actually be something wrong with me if they're helping me develop and they're helping guide my behavior? And that, I think, you know, in total, it wasn't just the, the overexcitability part for me. It was seeing that all those big scary emotions that normally, you know, when you go to mental health websites or services, they're sort of like, don't feel that stuff. You know, that's bad. We don't want to feel those things. I'm like, hang on, if they've got a role in my development, why am I trying to shut them out? You know, why am I trying to get rid of them? Maybe they serve a purpose. And if they serve a purpose, how can they possibly be flaws? You know, obviously you've got to figure out a way to harness that and do something with it through your auto-psychotherapy and stuff. But, like, how can I be flawed if, you know, on the other end of the scale you've got someone who's a narcissist who thinks there's nothing wrong with themselves, that they're perfect, and there's nothing to change? Like, clearly this stuff has a useful role, um, and maybe we shouldn't be stigmatising it so much or trying to shut it out, like, because the minute you do that, you're really shutting out your own development. That took me quite a while to to make that shift in thinking. Um, you know, I think the mental health space is kind of like in this in-between phase where they sort of talk about, you know, these big emotions, they're okay to have them. Everybody sort of goes through them. You know, I think there's less of a stigma about talking about mental health, but the, at the end of the day, their solution to this is to, well, shut it down, get rid of it. Um, and I think there's still another part to that journey to sort of embracing and accepting it and going, okay, how do I actually use this to my benefit? I was just making notes because you're saying you're prompting a lot of thoughts for me. The first is that I think with the dynamisms in spontaneous multi-level disintegration, you know, some of these dynamisms are very emotionally charged, like dissatisfaction with yourself. So let's use that one actually as a good example of what I was just thinking of, like action and like developing your will, moving forward. All of those things are what have to happen. And that's, that's what I saw you do after the Hartman value profile, you know, it was like a shock to see your results and you could have just like kind of wallowed in that you could have pushed back from it, ignored it. But I think the most important thing is like that when you see some, when you face something about yourself, that's hard, you know, taking action and, and making that, that vertical move out of it. Um, like personally lately I've been like, I'm writing a book right now. I mean, so are you, I think you'll find it interesting listeners to know that we're each writing a book right now. And Emma has a real 
It's well, it's interesting. I mean, you have a head start in the sense that you have a much higher word count than me right now of actual text for your manuscript, but I'm behind you because I have like this huge amount of writing that I've been trying to, you know, go through and and write from. Like that's just my process. So I've been reading a lot about times of disintegration in my life, but unilevel disintegration. You know, you talk about like the carrot and stick dynamisms, and those dynamisms are so different than the unilevel ones. The unilevel ones, ambivalence, ambitendencies, the second factor, they're different. I mean, they don't have that stick part that makes you realize that, you know, you're screwing up. And so what happens is you have these fluctuations in your mood. You know, you have self-sabotaging behaviors. You're worried about what other people think. You're you know, you're worried about how you look or how you're presenting yourself to a degree that, I mean, is getting in your own way. I mean, unilevel disintegration can look a lot of different ways. It can also have multi-level elements present. And so when I look at my times of unilevel disintegration, I know that there are multi-level elements there too. And what's interesting to me now is that the worst times of my life when I really saw myself as the sickest in terms of mental health, when I had, when I was taking like 17 pills a day or whatever, you know, when I was like in and out of the hospital numerous times, those were times when the unilevel dynamisms weren't pushing me into growth like adequately. You know, I was making the same mistakes and I wasn't really facing who I was and what was going on. You know, I was kind of also going through trauma though. And so I think that that's important to note that, you know, all of the times of unilevel disintegration for me were also times of trauma, but ultimately like the movement comes when you start taking action, when you take your development into your own hands. And I've seen that look a lot of different ways over my life. And a lot, it looks different now than it did when I was young. But it's been really fascinating for me to work on this book and see my development and how it's changed. And I'm sure that you must be going through the same thing right now as you're working on your book. Yeah, it has been. Um, and because I'm kind of trying to write about the theory in a way that I guess the lay person can easily sort of grapple with and figure out, you know, where am I in this particular journey and, and what can I do about it? One of the things that has started to become more and more obvious is you've got to put the work in to walk your talk. And sometimes you don't really know what that work's going to look like for you. Because I remember like early on when we first met, I was kind of like, where is there actually a description of what you're supposed to do in autopsychotherapy? Like, why hasn't Dabrowski sort of said that? And eventually I sort of grappled with the realisation that it's going to look different for everybody depending on what they're going through and what they respond to. And, you know, so for you, like writing is a major tool. Um, and for me as well, writing, going back and writing about my life and certain things has sort of helped get through realisations, but that's not going to work for everybody. Like some people just don't. Like, right, you know, so maybe journaling or whatever is not the the answer. Um, 
but I, th- I think that's part of the the challenge is that while I've sort of seen that the dynamisms um, they're pretty universal. Like Dabrowski did a really good job of describing this thing that sort of gives these underpinning principles to and experiences that could be very broad and vast, but you know, those sorts of feelings are pretty common, but it's like, well, what do you do with yourself in so far as, you know, the work and, and how do you push through it? It's kind of a little bit like self-love, like even if you don't get it wholly right and you know, you don't end up getting to a place where you're like hundred percent comfortable with yourself and you always, you know, love yourself. And sometimes you can still be hard and, and beat yourself up a little bit, but I think it's the trying that sometimes counts. Like, even though you might be going through cycles of like, okay, well that didn't work completely or, you know, cause I think sometimes we view mental health as like, there's going to be this one magic bullet that's going to just fix everything. Um, and for a long time, I think that's kind of been medication. It's just like, take this pill and it'll, it'll fix all your, your problems. It's like, no, no, it fucking won't. Um, and, and I think having that view of like it being a longer journey and, you know, you're going to improve things little bit by little bit in little cycles and, you know, step by step. I think for me, that's the, that's one of the important things that's come out of this whole you know process of writing for me is that you you just you find a new thing and you fix that and then you find the next thing and then you fix that and eventually you know if you fix enough little things and concentrate on doing those steps you know to the best of your capability eventually it'll it'll sort of make a difference and I think for me that's the one thing that stood out is that while it's all well and good to understand the landscape and that, it's like, well, how do you move forward when moving forward looks different for everybody and it might be a sort of slow, laborious, piece-by-piece process? So I think one of the things that I've gotten from Michael Pihovsky's work that has been such a blessing for me is his case studies of the exemplars because I feel that they do exactly what you're describing in that they're talking about the way to live, like this is the way to the higher path. I mean, the writing of Peace Pilgrim, Eleanor Roosevelt, like these people that he's written about say things that when I read them, I'm like, yes, this is the guidebook to how to do it. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just really clear to me. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Like I'm thinking just, the layers and layers and layers in my story of what was going on, like how much I was in my own way because of the way my mind works. Um, You know, you said it's the trying that counts. I had this drive to actualize like who I am, even when I was young. And even when I thought I was mentally ill, I kept trying to go back to college. You know, I, I went away to school right after high school Then I had to leave after two years because my parents couldn't like afford for me to keep going. And I came home and I started going to school part-time. And then I had a couple suicide attempts and I was hospitalized. And then I went on disability for mental illness, but I never stopped trying to go back to school. I mean, I would try and I would fail and not finish the semester. And I would try again and I would fail and I would try and I would fail. And I went to 10 colleges and universities over my educational you know, history, because I 
knew that I wanted to be a scholar and I knew that I, you know, want, I had this mission, right? But I, I mean, that took years and years and years to, to work through. And so each layer of the story was like chipping away at who I really am. And that's just a theme, like of every disintegration brought me closer to who I really am. And I just kept learning and I learned how to be a better person, you know, and I learned how to be a person and how to treat people well and how to, and ultimately it was also important to learn how to treat myself well. And I think that that's what I'm doing right now in this, in the aftermath of Frank dying. I've been protecting my time, you know, I just, I can't talk to people right now. I'm the kind of person who needs to grieve in solitude. And so, you know, if you're writing to me right now, if, you know, I normally am much more open, I have not been on social media. I don't want to do any of that right now. I just need to be on my own. But this is something I've had to learn, like how to have boundaries, how to really honor myself and my process. And so I feel really good about being able to do that relatively kindly. And I appreciate the people in my life who have supported me through this, continue to reach out. You know, I appreciate you, even though I'm the kind of person who likes to withdraw. The other thing you said that I wanted to touch on is like the magic bullet of pills. Because when I was a kid, I just was sure that there was some medication that was going to fix me. And I just tried pill after pill after pill. And it's sad to me now to look back on my journal entries and see like, well, if I just, you know, if I just double this or, and you know, my doctor went with that. Like it just, it's hard to look back and see that no one could reach me. And I was so like defended against, you know, being able to hear that I wasn't really mentally ill. There were actually clinicians who were like, you, you're not really mentally ill. Like you can get out of this by changing the way you're living, by changing the stories that you're telling about yourself. Like that's part of my problem was like, as long as I was telling myself I was severely mentally ill, I was going to be severely mentally ill. I had to learn a way out of that. And that's one of the things I got from Dabrowski's theory. It gave me a way out of thinking of myself as as broken. And it gave me the tools that I needed to move forward. But all of that happened in relationships. You know, I think that one of the things that's important to remember is that like our personal growth doesn't happen in a vacuum. And that it's the relationships in our lives that allow us to let the dynamisms unfold to some degree, you know. I mean, a lot of what we learn about, I don't know, how to act right in the world is is based on our relationships with people. Well, not only, you know, how we learn to act in the world in the first place is based on relationships, but the more I've thought about this theory, you know, particularly trying to get my thoughts on paper about it, we keep talking about, you know, this comes back to values and relationships. And when I think about values as being the things that are important to you and the standards of behavior that you have, like all our behaviors, they're based on our values for a start. So, you know, what we think is important, what we think is right. But they're also, most of our stuff is in relation to how we act with other people. It's like interpersonal things, like, you know, what, what we consider right and wrong is all 
behaviours towards other people or the world at large. And that's why our values are so important because they sort of drive us to acting towards other people, you know, inappropriate ways that are in align with how we feel. And so without other people around you, without a, a world at large, your values are pretty meaningless because if it's just you, you're the last person on the face of the earth. Like being empathetic doesn't matter anymore. Whether or not you steal doesn't matter anymore. Like none of the stuff really that sort of we think about your authentic behaviour, like that all goes out the window because there's no one to behave with. I think the other thing that I wanted to touch on, uh, Chris, is what you were saying, you know, with the – you know, everything about the, you know, the magic bullet and how you see yourself, you know, whether or not you see yourself as mentally ill. What I'm thinking about this is we've got this framework that talks about how our feelings help us develop. And we're talking about our stories as, you know, it's a long series of realizations and hard work and doing things bit by bit um, and you know, figuring out who we are. And it's all that is completely counter to what we see in mental health spaces because for a start those negative emotions are seen as the exception not the rule so there's no recognition of the fact that well you know maybe you do go through a very long series of bad feelings and working on yourself for a very long time um and that's perfectly okay like that's really what Dabrowski's getting at but that's not what we see in treatment, it's all like fix this and fix it quick and your bad feelings, you know, your negative emotions, all those stick dynamisms, they should be the exception, not the rule. You know, that it should that should make up such a small portion of your life. We don't want it to happen, you know, if if preferable and if possible. Like so the the way that we tackle this stuff, generally speaking, is so counter to what we see play out in our own stories. Um, and the stories that we hear of other people about these, you know, these long journeys of self-exploration and and figuring out that all the shit that we go through, all those negative feelings, they're not actually a sign of being broken. There's nothing to fix. What we're trying to fix isn't those dynamisms and isn't those emotions. What we're trying to fix is aligning our behavior to our true values figuring out what our true values are in the first place, working on self, figuring out who the hell we fucking are in the first place. That's what's important. But like, it's like sticking a freaking bandaid on cancer. Like it's not, it's not helpful. And the, the root cause of the stuff is still going to be there. No matter how many friggin' pills that you throw at it, like all, all the shit that is causing these dynamisms, all that misalignment, you know, with values that causes the stuff isn't even being looked at. It's true. You made me think of a, I don't know, just a conversation I had with Michael at some point, you know, where I was like trying to think about the essence of my story and how to describe it, you know, in this writing process. And he was like, well, your story is of discovering and affirming your own values. <laughs> I mean, think of it that way. And it's true. I mean, like at the end of the day, that's what it comes back to. And when I was struggling when I was younger, you know, when I was using drugs, especially, I, I mean, and when I say using drugs, like 
like I was like trying to kill myself with drugs, you know, and it's because, I mean, I was like living with my alcoholic father, you know, I realize now it's so interesting to me. I've thought a lot about like, what was, what were the multi-level shifts in my story? You know, like I see that I had these times of unilevel disintegration and well, what were the moments that took me out of them? And one thing that is really clear is that I was always able to see things in my imagination and then make them happen. You know, I, I was able to like watch myself get well, and then I could make it happen in real life. And that's something that, you know, happened multiple times for me. And the emotions were always there too. But, you know, I think that the most important shift that I've had in my adult life happened when I was first getting to know Michael and first studying the theory and I decided to take my life in my own hands and I just stopped taking medication and I just stopped going to the doctor. I'm not saying that anybody else should do that. I'm not recommending that path, but that's what I did because I was studying this theory of positive disintegration. And I said, okay, I need to see what happens when I'm not on any medication. I had been taking medication for like 23 or 24 years. I didn't even know who I was. And so I had to figure all that out and it took time and the best decision I ever made, I think. The third factor is all about choice, but not just choice. You're not only making the choice and you're not only like affirming the things about yourself that are you, you know, and rejecting the parts that aren't, but you're also, you know, taking that action. It's more than an intellectual ac exercise. It's something that you're engaging your will and, you know, enacting, embodying in your life. Part of that, you know, will to take action starts with that whole feeling like you're worthwhile fixing. Um, you know, maybe there's not something grievously wrong with me that can't be fixed. Maybe, you know, I, when I made attempts on my life, I was at a point that I'm like, I'm so friggin' broken. Um, there is something wrong with me. I'm defective and it's never going to be fixed. Like this will never be solved. I am just a waste of space. I'm an oxygen thief um, and I don't deserve my place on this planet, which is a huge difference to how I think about myself now, which is that I don't see myself as broken, that the challenges and the negative feelings that I have are purposeful, um, but also that I'm worthwhile working on and that working on myself in the right way using the theory can actually bear fruit and is useful and it's helped me so much and you know I, I talked to you about to you about the fact that the whole reason why I started writing that book is that we're sitting on this tool that can be so helpful to some people that are going through these things um, because unless you actually know about the theory you, you can't utilize it we've got this tool and it fucking works you know, for in some instances, it's an absolute lifesaver. Um, and in my mind, we've got a responsibility to get it out there in as many places as humanly possible so that it can help other people because I've seen the magic that it can do because it's happened in my life. It's happened in your life, Chris. It's happened in the lives of plenty of the people that we've had on the podcast. Even some of the feedback that we get, you know, with emails is how 
much of a game changer this theory can be, but it's just not out where it needs to be. That's right. Oh my gosh, I'm glad you mentioned the people who write to us because that's part of what I, I feel bad right now. It's hard to keep up. We get a lot of emails from people who resonate with what we're saying and who get it. And I just want you to know how meaningful that is for us. And I we try to get back to everybody and we will get back to you eventually. And we just appreciate everybody's patience. It's so it's like amazing to me that I went through all of this. And it's, I wish that I had known when I was young that all of that suffering meant something, that something positive would come from it. I just had no idea and I wanted to kill myself. You know, I just couldn't see what was on the other side of my suffering. So, like, we're talking about, you know, this tool and how useful it is. And one of my observations is that any time that I go to a mental health website looking at what their content is or you know how they're framing mental health um the two things that really shit me is you never see any mention of neurodivergence um so when we're talking about why people might feel depressed or anxious never any mention that oh perhaps you might be neurodivergent maybe that's why you've got really big feelings or perhaps that's why you have a bit more anxiety than the average joe um, so there's no mention of that. That really bothers me. But there's also a real lack of recognition, you know, as to Dabrowski's theory of that role of emotions and how they can be normal responses to the world. And, like, there seems that fundamental, you know, lack of saying that sometimes it's okay to feel like shit particularly when circumstances in your life are shit and this is going to be a normal response because that's part of the reason why I ended up on uh, antidepressants at one point and I decided to stop taking them. If they had just probed a little bit further before chucking me on pill, they would have understood that I was in such a shit situation um, with my home life that it's like, dude, you, you've got to leave. <laughs> really that that's your solution like pills were not the solution the solution was to get out of the shitty circumstances that i was in um but when you're looking at mental health websites they're all like well it's something within you that you're just having these bad feelings and it's like where is the recognition that there's some really vulnerable people out there and they're just having a normal response to the crap in their lives even if you're not conscious of it you know, some people can be struggling. Maybe they're getting career fatigue or their relationship's starting to go sour or, you know, they're just struggling. Like we're now seeing articles about, you know, finances lead to, you know, adverse mental health. It's like I don't see that as adverse mental health. If you're struggling with money and you're always broke, it's normal to feel like that. But there's no kind of recognition of the normalcy and the situations where sometimes these things are quite fine things to fail. Oh, absolutely. You made me think of um, a conversation that I had with Frank actually about this book, Developmental Psychotherapy. It's an unpublished manuscript from Dabrowski. And Frank, like when he was reading that book, he was so blown away by learning about Dabrowski's like therapeutic approach, you know, with his client, with his patients. He was like, so Dabrowski, I mean, he would sit down with his patients and 
help them come to the conclusions about like who they were, you know, like he would help them understand their developmental potential and frame it for them as strengths and like identify what kind of dynamisms were going on with them. So when Frank was reading this stuff after spending like his whole career working with overexcitability and gifted ed, he was seeing that, you know, it was this theory that applied to mental health and to, you know, helping people out of suffering. It was like such a cool thing to work through that kind of book with him and see the, the way that this stuff really holds up and that that's what we want to do for people now. Like we should be helping people identify, you know, if you have overexcitabilities, like these are not things that are wrong with you. Um, you know, you have to, you do have to learn how to live like this, but like you said, you also have to take stock of your environment and see, you know, what is my life like right now? I mean, when I was suffering in these times that I've been describing today, I was living with my alcoholic father. Like I said, I mean, this man died at 52 from alcoholism. It was a traumatic situation to have a parent like that. Um, there were also traumatic events like happening in my life that went along with how we were living. You know, I would, I witnessed, you know, violent events and it was, yeah, I mean, traumatic on multiple levels. So it was a natural reaction to my environment to be feeling those feelings and, you know, and struggling like I was. It's sad that I thought it was something wrong with me. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it just blows me away that it never, I was always just like, oh, this is a mental illness. It's not a natural reaction to this environment where my father has signs of dementia in his early forties from alcohol. Like that was traumatic. Probably if it is. And it's perfectly normal trauma response as well. Like when I say normal, I mean like anyone else who was going through that probably would have had some of the same reactions, but th this is the whole band-aid on cancer thing, right? It's like we're looking at the the symptoms and, oh, you've, you've got these bad feelings, let's kind of like deal with that. And, and sometimes when people go to, you know, therapy and that people are trying to dig down to the underlying causes of this, but for people who aren't actually engaged with a professional and aren't going to therapy, maybe they can't afford it. Um, or maybe they're a bit nervous about it, some of that information needs to sit in the public space to open up those conversations in the first place, to sort of say, okay, this is how anyone would react to those circumstances. Maybe you've got circumstances in your life that are, you know, giving you trauma or bad emotions, but that's okay. And it's okay to need to talk to someone about it. But like, if you don't, mention that and open the doorway for those ideas to get into people's head if you don't start saying the message maybe you're not broken and open that door of thought then like there's so many people that are just gonna stay hidden um and aren't gonna come forward with their stuff that's right you have to just like crack that door so that somebody, you know, can see that there's another way of looking at it. 
that's absolutely what happened to me last weekend. You know, we had the Dabrowski study group and Frank ran the study group. It was our first one without him for the first time since 2016. And so, you know, we were talking a lot about him. It's so hard to, you know, it's hard for me to believe now, like the way that things unfolded, you know, that I met, you know, these people um, and they had the impact that they had on me. But I remember like, so I met Frank and Nancy and they, and Nancy, like, she was like, oh, you should, you know, write a paper for the journal Advanced Development about the autoethnography you did, you know, because I was telling them about the study that I did to figure out like what had gone, the research question for my autoethnography was what went wrong with me? How did I go from gifted child to mental patient? You know, I was trying to understand how I could be gifted and mentally ill. And so I'm describing it to them. So she was like, well, you should write a paper about that. And I did. And I'll link it in the show notes. You know, I, I wrote this paper. But when I was, so I submitted it. And that's how I met Michael. Like, so he wrote to me as an editor. And he offered to help me with this paper. He was like, this is pretty rough right now. But you have the story's good. And, you know, you did this work. So yeah, like, I'll help you. But I I mean, I saw him as like so intimidating. I didn't want to work on the paper with him. You know, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to like Michael Behofsky. I mean, he thinks he's just going to tell me that it's overexcitability. Like I knew that I was mentally ill. <laughs> it's such a trip in retrospect to, rem to remember that. I was like, oh, I don't want this guy to like challenge my thinking. But that's exactly what he did. He was like, you're not like, I don't see your mental, you know, I don't see your ADHD. I don't see your mental illness. Yeah. Like he definitely just saw it as overexcitability and giftedness. But like, there was a lot of truth to that. I mean, it turns out that there's not something wrong with me. I mean, I, I identify as neurodivergent. I don't know exactly what labels I would have, but I know that I'm atypical but there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> no, but can you imagine having that conversation on a large scale? Like if it was hard for you to take that message and shift your thinking that, oh, maybe I'm not broken, maybe this is not mental illness, um, doing that on a large scale is daunting to say the least, to sort of ch try and like put this theory out and say to all sorts of people that are currently working in the mental health space. Hey, here's a new way to think about things, but it might really break your head open and challenge the way that you're thinking about shit. I mean, that just seems like a monumental hurdle um, because the way of thinking with the theory is so drastically different and you are going to push those things that people are holding on to, these really you know, deep set beliefs, not just about how people see themselves, but how they view mental health, you know, anxiety, depression as a whole. You know, this is not an easy conversation to have on a broad scale, like let alone with one person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to get across with the podcast. I know that there are practitioners who listen to it. And I you know, there are people who you know, I mean, there, I would say that there's a 
Well, I mean, we have a variety of listeners. We have a, a number of young listeners. You know, it's we have older listeners. Like, well, we do have a variety of of listeners, but I mean, I think it's necessary that we start talking about this stuff because, yeah, if we just try and talk about it from a therapist's perspective, we're going to get pushback, um, and there's going to people be people that don't want to work with the theory, and we can't just rely on people like who are in treatment to sort of take this theory to their therapist and go, here's something I want to discuss. Like I found this new way of thinking. Can we talk about it? I think like we, we have to sort of attack this from as many angles as possible, even to sort of make an inroad simply because it is so challenging to the way people are thinking like largely about stuff at the moment. I just hope that we can reach people. I never know how to talk about it the most effective way to reach the most people. You know, I, I don't want to get, I realize that I have a tendency personally to be too in the weeds with details. It's because I have been trained to be a scholar, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like, this is my job is to really be in the details about stuff. But I realize that that's not going to be my most effective way to bring the theory to the to the people. And that's who I want to bring it to. I mean, I, of course I want to do academic work, but at the end of the day, I want to reach you listener and help you get the most benefit out of this theory, whether you need it because you're struggling right now or because you're doing work with people and you want to help them with it. I think that we're just trying to cast the widest net right now. And we're, I mean, feel free to give us feedback on on what you think would help us be more effective if you have it. We're certainly open to that. It's funny, funny you just said that. I'm sitting here thinking, um, if anyone's got some ideas of where we can <laughs> hang out mirrors, you know, we went on that um, CMM podcast and we were talking about, you know, we've got to try and hang our mirrors so people can see themselves reflected in this thing in as many places as possible. It's like, well, we've got the mirror, but has anyone got any nails or a hammer or some spare wall space that we can stick this on? Um, so it's funny that you said give us feedback So I'm just thinking, yeah, if anyone's got any ideas on, you know, mental health spaces or other places that we can, like, talk about this theory, um, I'd invite you to let us know because that's really the challenge Chris and I are having at the moment is, like, how do we, like, open the door, get our foot in and to enable us to talk about this stuff and have these challenging conversations in the right spaces because I'm I'm a bit stuck. <laughs> like, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, and I think it's more than even just asking the question. I want to give you permission, people who are listening right now, like go forth with the theory and apply it. Use it however you see fit, you know, use it like to make your lives more effective and to help other people. Like we need to constantly be thinking, who can we help with this theory? How can we bring it to somebody who can benefit from it? That's, that's the thing, you know, and I want to acknowledge that it was, it was saying who kind of asked us to do this episode and be a part of Mental Health um, Awareness Month. 
I'm grateful, you know, to Lynn Lim. She has, you know, given us a chance to to share with with their audience, you know, and I'm grateful because I know that gifted people are a majority of our listeners and like, you know, people who work in this field, like this is who we're probably reaching more than anybody else right now, but we need to go beyond that population. Like this theory has such broad applicability beyond the gifted that it's really important that we just do the best we can to get the message out there and we're not able to do it on our own. You know, so thank you to everybody who, you know, thank you to Abby. I'm so glad you mentioned um, stories live stories told is the podcast that we were recently on. And, you know, we'll link to that in the show notes. It's so great to be able to reach new audiences and to have these um, chances for collaboration with other people who you know, have like similar aims and goals. And, you know, I think a lot of us are just trying to, I mean, I really see like a generational shift right now when it comes to those of us who, you know, are using like the language of neurodivergence. You know, when I said earlier, like, God, I don't know what labels, you know, I should apply to myself. I am comfortable with ADHD. Like, I don't see anything that's not like something I think is wrong with me anymore. Um, but I certainly used to, you know, I thought for, I put in my dissertation that I had like cognitive deficits from ADHD and I took it out, I think, before I submitted the final draft, but that's how I saw myself several years ago, you know, as having something wrong with me. And so I know that when we're doing an episode like this, we're just trying to hold up a mirror to people. I mean, we're always trying to do that. We talk about that a lot. I'm glad that we did this episode. I feel a lot better. I'm grateful that I was able to talk about Frank. I really needed to do that. Frank was on episode five of the podcast talking about researching overexcitability. He was such a kind, gentle person. Um, the day I founded the Dabrowski Center, he sent me a check. I mean, he supported me in every way, like I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better friend and mentor than Frank. You know, I have been very blessed to have Frank and Michael as my mentors. It's, I needed both of them. You know, they were such, they're such different people. Frank was like, so willing to get in the weeds with me. Um, I could send him any thoughts. He was just there for me. And such a great person. Like I just appreciated him so much and I miss him already. So thanks for letting me talk about him too. That was beautiful. Thanks to you for being so open and talking about your stuff. And I know it's a really difficult time for you at the moment. And, and Frank was a, a lovely, beautiful human. Um, so no doubt you're feeling his loss quite strongly um, you know, and for someone who feels things quite strongly anyway, that's that's saying something. Um, but also thanks to our listeners for, you know, being with us through what was, you know, a difficult conversation at times. And um, I hope everybody's out there looking after yourself. And, you know, Chris, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to be here as a friend to you and allow you the space to talk about this stuff. So thank you. Thanks to our listeners. Um, 
it's been it's been a great conversation um and i'm just going to challenge everybody out there do it frank you know (laughs) do it for chris do it for yourself um whoever you need as your inspiration um go out there share the message as chris said work with ethereum whatever way is applicable to you um but but share information as well um we sometimes talk about the fact that we don't never know who the theory is going to help um it might be someone in your life that you don't know that they need it and we're really looking for needles in an eight billion human haystack who might not know that they're needles so um share resources links whatever on your social media talk about positive disintegration in as many spaces as you can um and share this wonderful tool that's you know clearly made such a difference um through beautiful loving humans in both of our lives um because you could be that beautiful loving human that makes a difference in someone else's life that was perfect Thank you so much, Emma. I mean, I've so appreciated your friendship and support through all of this. And thank you, listeners. I mean, it's, I always feel connected with you. And, you know, Frank, he was like in the hospital at the end of his life and he couldn't, like, he wasn't able to really read anymore, but he was listening to the podcast episodes and it really, like, was so heartwarming to know that he could do that. But yeah, he will be missed. It's been a pleasure as always. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to be able to do this. So (laughs) thank you. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being here. And it is always a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. Uh, We always appreciate you too. Positive Disintegration Podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.